your Bible and turn with me to Luke 13. That's where we're going to be. We are moving verse by verse through Luke's gospel. We've been um, in this gospel for uh, quite a while, and uh, we're going to be in it a little bit while longer. A little bit while longer. That's an interesting way to say that. As you're finding your place there, uh, I want to just take you back in time just a little bit. Uh, Wilma Rudolph, back in the 40s, maybe the late 30s, was born prematurely, which was a big deal back then. Being born premature created all sorts of complications as an infant and as a young child. And those complications resulted in her uh, getting double pneumonia two different times. It also uh, in, allowed her or caused her to contract scarlet fever as a child. Worse and as bad as those two situations were, those infections were, the worst thing that she encountered as a child was battling polio. Uh, her battle with polio as a child left her with a crooked left leg and a foot that was twi twisted inward. And so metal leg braces, the obvious stares from neighborhood kids that she was growing up with, and six years of getting on the bus and traveling to Nashville for treatments could have driven this young girl into her own self-made cocoon, and yet she refused to do so. Wilma just kept dreaming. She was determined not to allow her disability to get in the way of her dreams, and maybe her determination came from her uh, Christian mother who just simply said to her often, honey, the most important thing you can do in life is to believe it and just keep on trying. And that's what Wilma did. By age 11, Wilma had decided to believe what her mom was telling her all those years. And so through sheer determination, through this indomitable spirit to persevere, regardless of the difficulty, she forced herself how to learn to walk without the metal braces. At age 12, she realized and discovered something wonderful, and that is girls could run and jump and play sports just like the boys. Her older sister, Yvonne, was quite a basketball player, and so Wilma, who had just learned how to walk without the braces, decided to take up basketball. And she began to challenge her older sister on the basketball court, and she began to improve. She began to get better at the game, understanding it more than anything, getting better at moving. And so the two of them tried out for the same high school team. Yvonne made the final cut of 12, and yet Wilma did not. But her dad refused to let Yvonne travel with the team unless uh, Wilma was with him. And so uh, Wilma often found herself in the presence of the basketball coach. One day she got the nerve to go to the coach and, uh, and say, basically, if you will give me 10, 10 minutes of your time every single day, if you'll just give me 10 minutes, I will give you a world-class athlete. The coach took Wilma up on the offer, and the result is absolute history. Young Wilma finally won a starting position on the basketball team, and when that season was over, she tried out for track, which was an incredible feat in and of itself. In her very first race, she beat her best friend. Then she beat all the girls in her high school. Next, she beat every high school girl in the state of Tennessee. In fact, when Wilma was 14 years old, she had become a champion. This is a young girl that they told would never walk without braces, and yet she had become a champion in the state of Tennessee. Shortly thereafter, because she was so much better than every other girl, and yet even though she was in high school, she was invited to join the Tiger Bells track team at Tennessee State University. 
She began a, serious, began a serious training program after school and on the weekends to get better and better and faster and faster. And she did just that. She improved as an athlete. She continued to win those short races. She continued to win in the 400-meter relay with other teammates. Two years later, she was so good and so recognized, she was invited to try out for the U.S. Olympics team. She qualified. And she ran in the 1956 Games in Melbourne, Australia. That year in Melbourne, she won a bronze medal with her team, placing third in the 400-meter relay, which was an incredible feat, something that few athletes, few track stars ever get to accomplish. She stood there on the medal stand, and yet it wasn't enough for her. She decided that the next time around, she would go for the gold. Wilma realized that the victory that she desired, the uh, the, the, the gold medal that she wanted would require an enormous amount of commitment, an enormous amount of sacrifice and discipline. To give her that winner's edge as a world-class athlete, she began a do-it-yourself approach to training. It was the same sort of training that enabled her to walk away from braces on her legs to running in a track meet. So not only did she run at 6 a.m., 10 a.m., and 3 p.m. every day with her team, she would often sneak out of her dormitory, go down the fire escape at night, and run the track from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. before sneaking back upstairs for the night. Wilma maintained this grueling schedule for over 1,200 days. Now it was time for the 1960 Games in Rome. As a sleek, trim, and 20-year-old lady walking onto the field in that arena, Wilma was ready because she had paid the price. Even those 80,000 fans could sense the, the, the spirit of victory as she walked out and began to warm up. It was electrifying. History tells us that a cadence began to flow throughout the arena as people began to chant, Wilma, Wilma, Wilma. They were confident that she would take gold that year. Win is exactly what Wilma Rudolph did. She breathes to an easy victory in the 100-meter dash. Then she went on to win the 200-meter dash. Finally, she anchored the U.S. women's team in the 400-meter relay, and they took gold. She was the first woman in history to ever win three gold medals in track and field. And listen to this. Each of those victories was a world record. This is a lady who they said would never walk, much less run, without leg braces, now she's a world champion. Wilma Rudolph was victorious in Rome because she had this, this desire, this, this unction about her to train hard and to prepare diligently. She possessed this keen awareness of her disabilities, but she was so determined that she would never let them in, hinder her in any way. It pushed her to achieve her goals. Her story is obviously an incredible story. But today, you and I hold in our hands another incredible story of victory. We sang about it this morning as we talked about and sang about Jesus being the one that we crown with many crowns. He is our victorious king. His victory in life and his victory in death is different from Wilma's. You see, he was not victorious because of his commitment to training. Jesus was victorious and is victorious because of who he was and who he is king. That's why he's victorious. From our passage this morning, right here in Luke chapter 13, if you got your finger there, we're going to see victory on full display. 
Because Jesus demonstrated this victory, this ongoing victory of the kingdom, despite any human and despite any satanic opposition, he always came out on top. That ought to be an encouragement in and of itself this morning. Look with me, if you will. Let's begin reading in Luke 13, picking up in verse 10. Last week, we dealt with the first part of what we're going to look at this morning, and we looked at it from the perspective of just the Sabbath, because the miracle that Jesus is going to perform here. He performed on the Sabbath. He performed on that day of worship, that weekly day of worship for the Jews, which made this synagogue ruler irate. If you're reading with us in the Bible, in our Bible reading plan, you read about this miracle, another miracle Jesus did on the Sabbath as well there in John's gospel. Look with me in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, been, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her and called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from this disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, Therefore, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made its nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Luke tells us here that in the synagogue where Jesus was teaching on this Sabbath, that on this particular morning, a short woman walked in and sat down to worship God. This text presents the very last time that we're going to see Jesus performing a miracle, really see Jesus in any way doing something in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This lady's shortness, this small statured lady had nothing to do with her inherited nature. It's not that she was born short. The reason she looked short was because she was bent over. She had a crippling disease for a number of years that forced her to slouch. Luke tells us here that the reason this woman was crippled is not because of some accident. It wasn't because she was born that way. She slouched because of satanic influence in her life. Now, medically speaking, many people would respond to this and and say that her condition was something that's called spondylitis deformans. That's a condition that causes the bones of the spine to fuse into a rigid mass. And so medically, we can look at her condition and say this was probably what she was dealing with. But Luke tells us what was behind that medical condition, what caused that medical condition. Luke tells us or informs us that it wasn't demonic possession in this woman's life, but it was demonic oppression in her life. 
She had been oppressed. She had been attacked for 18 years. And this spiritual attack left her bent over with her face facing the ground. And so think about this lady's condition. Think about what life would have been like for her. Every day she lives walking around bent over facing the ground. It was a miserable experience. Walking would have been difficult. Having a conversation would have been painful. Looking up was awkward. Since her eyes constantly faced the dirt, she missed much of the beauty of the world around her. Life there and the beauty there in, in Israel is something to marvel over. And she would have missed all of that. She would have missed the grandeur of walking into the temple courts area and, and seeing all of what Herod had created the temple to be. She missed that beauty because of her physical condition. For these reasons, many others, it would have been much easier for this dear woman to just stay at home. I mean, think about the, the depression she would have battled. Think about the hardships she would have faced. It would have been a whole lot easier for her to just stay, simply stay home rather than going out and definitely rather than going to worship in the synagogue. But to her credit, she sought the solace that comes from worship and the word. Luke here is the only gospel writer to tell us this story. And he packages it for us. He puts it here in the middle of his gospel. He put it here, puts it here in this section that is emphasizing the kingdom of God. And I believe it fits well to what he's seeking for us to understand. Here we see that Jesus is demonstrating his kingdom power. Here we're seeing his kingdom victory on full display. And we see it come to life in her life using this miracle as an opportunity to further teach on kingdom victory. As we read, we see this synagogue ruler was going to have, was having none of it. He was indignant. That's a simple way to say he was ticked off. He was furious over what Jesus had the audacity to do. He was even ticked off at the people because they had the audacity to seek freedom and to seek healing on the Sabbath from this miracle worker. And so he chastises them. Hey, there's six other days on which to do work. Come on those days if you want to be healed. And so he, he lashes out at the people. Jesus, as he so often did, rebuked his hypocritical and graceless mindset. This miraculous healing of the woman and Jesus' teaching on the kingdom gives us a clear understanding of kingdom victory and what that looks like. And so this morning, I want to take my time, if I can, and just share with you three simple truths in regards to kingdom victory that we see here in this text. And I think we need to see them for our own lives. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The kingdom of God sets people free from slavery to Satan. Now, that's a concept that we in our age and, and our day and time, we just, we don't think about that. Most of the time, even those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we probably don't operate with this kingdom mindset that there is a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. That there's this war between the Lord Jesus Christ as king and the one who would seek to dethrone him, Satan. Now, with that said, I want you to understand that when we think of this, this, uh, this cosmic warfare, it is not a true dualism. 
Jesus is far superior than Satan. They are not brothers as some of the people in this world would like for us to believe. They are not co-equals. They are not in any way on the same playing field. Yesterday in college football, we have seen or we saw just how much parity is coming into play in college athletics due to a number of things. And so when an Alabama can go to South Florida and, and literally be taken to the very end of the game when that should have been a 50 to nothing stomping. It's, there's parity that's tapping, happening in college football. Let me tell you this morning, there is no parity when it comes to kingdom warfare. Jesus is superior. And yet we see a warfare taking place here and we see that God in his sovereignty and God in his infinite wisdom seems to play ball with Satan. He could obviously just speak a word and evil would be gone, but he delays that for the time. But we need to never just think that there's no cosmic warfare going on, that there's no one that's enslaved to Satan. Everyone born into this world is born in rebellion against God. Therefore, our Father, our ruler, and our Lord is Satan himself, and Jesus comes to give us victory from that. Luke here provides background information on this woman's condition in verse 18 tells us that this woman had had a disabling spirit for all of these years. So her physical suffering was the result of spiritual influence. Now that's also hard for us to understand. The reason I gave you a medical definition or a medical description of what she might have dealt with is because we think in those terms. Many times we don't step back from that and think, there could be something spiritual behind this. But the Bible clearly tells us that for her, in her situation, she was there because of a spiritual warfare that was taking place. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 16 to further clarify the situation, stating that it was Satan who had bound her, who had afflicted her. And so as she worshipped in the synagogue that day, and as she listened to the teaching of Jesus, here's what we see from the text. Jesus saw her. Did you catch that when we were reading it? Did you catch it last week when we were reading it? That when Jesus is in the temple, think of a room this big, maybe larger than that. I've been there in some of the synagogues and that we've found over the years in Israel. And most of the time, they're roughly this size. Sometimes they've got some extra rooms or whatever. So think of a setting like this. I'm standing here every Sunday and I see your faces, but I don't see all of your faces. Some of you hide from me. And you'll say, hey, I was there, Sunday, great service. And I'm thinking in my head, most of the time I don't admit it, but like, I never saw you. I had no idea. Especially if you sat the first three rows, four rows, I don't ever look at you because I look over you for some strange reason. So me understanding this from a public speaking standpoint, I know that I don't see everyone's face. And so humanly speaking, it's easy for the teacher in the synagogue to not see their faces. But this is what Luke closes in on. Jesus saw her. He saw her, he saw her condition, he saw her situation, he saw the suffering that she was enduring, he saw her in her need. So I want you to know this morning, Jesus always sees people as they are, and Jesus always knows every need they have. He knows what's going on in your life today. He knows the struggles that you're having. He knows the attack. He knows every ramification for every situation that's going on in your life, your family, and your business. He also knows what's largely behind most of that, the spiritual influence that's there. And he stands ready. 
Jesus, seeing this woman suffering at the hands of Satan, graciously calls her to himself there in verse 12. He offered her an invitation to come and to believe. So when he says, come to me, she had the opportunity to say no. She had the opportunity to act like she didn't hear him. She had the opportunity to look away and just ignore what Jesus was instructing her to do. And so why did she respond? I got to believe that she had heard the stories of Jesus. I got to believe that she had heard the stories of people who had encountered Jesus and the healing that they had experienced. She knew about people who were deaf, who could now hear. She heard stories about those who were blind, who could now see. She heard the stories about those who were lepers and outcasts, that Jesus had actually physically touched them and healed their life. She heard stories about people who were dead and had been buried in the grave, and yet they're now alive and walking and well. And so when Jesus invites her to himself, she responds because she heard the stories and she believed them. She believed that Jesus could and would do that very same thing in her own life. You see, this morning, Jesus' invitation to come to him is always an invitation to believe on him in faith. And that is exactly what she did. She came to him. Verse 12 tells us, he pronounced her healing. Think about that. What a declaration that is. Woman, your disability is free. You're free from that. All the things that have trapped you for all of these years, the fact that you've walked over, bent, looking at the ground for all of these years, and no doctor could do anything for you, you're free from that. He spoke that over her life. This woman who had not known what it was like to stand up straight for nearly two decades now is standing upright. And rather than her eyes looking at the dirt and the rocks on the ground, her eyes are now squarely looking into the eyes of the King of Kings. Her healing was immediate. Her healing was recognizable. Her healing was glorious. And so verse 13 tells us that she shouted something like, glory. She glorified God because of the healing that she had experienced right there in that moment, instantaneously, when he says, woman, you're free from your disability. And with loving grace and with kindness and compassion, he reaches up and he grabs her and he lifts her to her feet and she stands upright. This was a miracle like anything else. And it demonstrates for us the truth that the kingdom of God sets people free from slavery to Satan. This woman was bound and in many ways controlled by the enemy. But what does Jesus do here? He sets her free. Woman, you're freed from your disability. Today, the same bondage that this lady was under is the same bondage that many are bound by this morning. But Jesus stands ready to set people free. Now, this morning, I didn't see anybody, unless I missed you, walking in, looking at the floor. And so... Should we look at this solely through the eyes of physical deformity and physical uh, illnesses or physical situations in life? No, not at all. There's a spiritual component here that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to clue us into. And that is Jesus as king sets us free from the bondage of the enemy. Is that not what Jesus declared when he started his ministry way back in Luke chapter 4 there in his hometown of Nazareth. He said this in verses 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
over and over again. Right here in these two verses, Jesus says, I've come to give you liberty. I've come to give you freedom. I've come to take the bondages and the shackles and the chains off your life that have kept you down, that have depressed you in life. I've come to give you life. I've come to take you from death and darkness and to bring you into life and light. Satan's purpose, John 10, 10 tells us, is to steal, kill, and destroy. You want to know what his mission is for you? His purpose is for your life? It is to steal, it is to kill, and it is to destroy and to ravage everything about you. Why? Because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And Satan is doing everything he can to malign that testimony. But what does Jesus say in the same verse? But I've come that you may have life, and life abundantly. There is a cosmic war taking place. And Jesus stands to bring us out of this kingdom of darkness and bring us into his kingdom of light. The synagogue ruler missed all of this. He missed this invitation in, into God's kingdom. He missed the blessing of what that meant for people. And so Jesus offered two parables to describe the kingdom. And so let's look at the second truth that I want you to see this morning. Here it is. The kingdom of God grows up and it grows out, reaching all nations. That's what we see right here in verses 18 and 19. It grows up and it grows out. Jesus offers this parable to uh, portray what he's talking about. And he talks about a mustard seed, that tiny, little, bitty, small seed that when you plant it into the soil, grows into something enormous and massive. It becomes a mustard tree so big that the birds of the air build nests in its branches. It's not just some little vine. It is a tree. So the, tree, the seed that is so tiny that it's almost invisible to the eye becomes so mighty that no one cannot not see it. That's what the kingdom of God does. It grows up and it grows out. This morning, I want you to understand that the kingdom of God, which began so insignificantly, it's going to continue to grow up and it's going to continue to grow out, touching, reaching all nations. Think about what Jesus is doing here. As the Messiah, he's born into the tribe of Judah. He's born into a, a no-nothing family, peasants basically. He's not born into nobility. He's not born into the uh, pharisaical line. He's from a Nazareth, which was a no, it was a city or a town, a village that no one wanted to live in. It had a lot of Gentiles there. It was known to be a, 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 a crooked and a kind of a wet, wild, wild west type of town in northern Palestine. And yet that's where Jesus was raised. That's where Jesus heralded from. And so when you think about where the kingdom of God comes from or seems to have its, its, its beginning, it's not in the halls of the king living in Jerusalem. And yet the Bible tells us that this little insignificant beginning of a kingdom is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until all the nations of the world are touched. Now, we understand this from a biblical theology standpoint. We understand that when God promised Abram, I'm going to make you a father of many nations through whom all the nations will be blessed. We understand how that's taking place and why it's taking place. 
But when we're just looking right here in this microcosm, what's happening in, in, in Israel at this day, we see this insignificant movement of people that's actually going to touch the nations of the world. So much so that when we come to Revelation chapter 7, we understand that there's coming a day when we're all as believers standing around the throne of God, and there's going to be people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, and we will all say with one unified voice, glory to God in the highest and to the Lamb of God. That's what the kingdom of God does. That's what Jesus is inaugurating here. That's what Jesus is bringing into this lady's life. So Satan's rule over the world and the people in it, we need to understand this morning, it is limited. Limited in scope, limited in time. Through the preaching of the kingdom, through the preaching of the gospel message, what happens with the kingdom is that it grows up and it grows out. It retakes territory that was lost to sin and to Satan. And so there is coming that day when we will say with that unified voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, we understand that hopefully. But before we... Like, do like some of the people in Jesus' day, before we begin to understand this from a military standpoint, let's move to a third truth this morning. The kingdom of God grows in and through people, profoundly affecting all. So Jesus gives a second parable to describe the kingdom. And the parable here in verse 21 compares the kingdom to yeast that is worked into dough and affects every aspect of that baked bread. I'm not a baker. I'm not a cook. I, I, I can do some stuff, but I'll say, like my grandpa used to say, when I boil water, I get lumps in it, right? So I know nothing of cooking. I couldn't bake bread to save my life. But when I read this text here, it tells me that if you're going to bake bread to make it rise, there has to be some aspect of yeast. And so you put that yeast into the bread and you work it into the dough. And when you're all said and done and you put those uh, pieces of, uh, of dough on the platter and you put it into the oven of some sort, you can no longer find the yeast that you put in there. Why? Because it's been equally manipulated into the dough until it's no more, it's no longer visible to the eye. And yet, think about this. It's invisible you can't see it, but it is absolutely influential. It makes that dough rise up. It works from the inside, but it's affecting everything that's in the dough. Obviously, we should never see the kingdom from an earthly perspective. We need to see it from a heavenly perspective. So we're not talking about a piece of real estate when we think about the kingdom of God. We need to divorce our thought process away from the kingdom state, the nation state of Israel when we're thinking about the kingdom of God. It's so much greater and grander than that. So we don't want to get caught up in necessarily what is happening in the history lines or the newspaper lines about Israel today. Those are important, but eternally they're not as important. The kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus said that in John 18, 36. It rather exists within the life of the believer through the church, the gathering of the believers. For as Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, he had in mind the reign and the rule of God that breaks into the world and breaks the power of Satan. It sets free all who have been held hostage by the enemy's power. As we read this parable and the one before it, kingdom victory is on full display. 
The kingdom will grow up. The kingdom will grow out. It's going to affect all nations. It's going to grow in and it's going to grow through people affecting all nations. We celebrate this. Why? Because we know that our God wins. We know that when it's all said and done, as I said earlier, that old, that old devil, that old serpent is going to be put down. His head's going to be crushed. We know he's already struck his heel. We know that that was a lethal blow, but it took Jesus to the cross. He died there, but that's our victory. So we know that that happened 2,000 or so years ago. We also, because of that reality, believe that he's coming again. So everything that is, that, that is owned or controlled by Satan will ultimately be put down. We know that. We believe that. We know that we win through Christ. And yet, as we read this, we dare not read some sort of Christian triumphalism into the text. You say, what in the world do you mean by that? We dare not read into this text that the Christian religion, as it grows up and out into all nations, displaces those other religions. Now, it will and has become more influential in certain seasons in certain areas of the world. There was a day and age in which, in America, I think we could legitimately call ourselves a Christian nation. There was that season for us as a nation. Because the majority of our, member, our citizens at least claimed and somewhat lived by the things of God. But the displacement of all religions into one faith, that is the gospel faith, the Christian faith, that's not going to happen until all things are put under the Lord's feet, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 25. So we're not reading here a Christian version of Islamic imperialism where we are seeking to literally destroy and decimate every other religion. No, we preach the gospel and we believe it is superior to all other religious beliefs because Jesus is king. But we don't bring a sword to that fight. We bring the gospel to that fight. And we allow the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and move in hearts and lives. And in that, the kingdom grows up and it grows out as it grows in and through his people. So the kingdom spreads. Now, for us in America, I think this is difficult for us to see. The kingdom's influence does not seem to be having much of an influence in our society, right? Or am I just the only one that thinks that? Turn the news on lately. Do you see a lot of just Let's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live our lives according to this book right here. Let, let, let's put an end to the things, the sinful things that are, that are destroying lives and families and children. Do you see that message on the TV today? Do you see that message online today? Do you see the headlines on social media calling us to gospel living? No, we don't see that at all. So it's hard for us to see the kingdom growing up and out. We have a hard time seeing the gospel grow in and through people here in America because seems that we've passed that point. Rather than seeing kingdom growth, we see shackles of sin and shame being put on us. Rather than that, those shackles being broken and freedom reigning, we see more and more bondage taking place. Today, here in America, we call the things that are bad, good, and we call the things that are good, bad, right? Today in America, we have a culture that wants to invent new ways of doing evil. 
we celebrate that. So where is this kingdom of God? Where is this influence that's taking, supposed to take place? What's happening here? Why is it in America that the percentage of people who claim to be members or attenders of church is literally declining every single year? What is happening in our society today? Where is the kingdom of God? Those are questions that we have to legitimately ask and try to answer. I think the reality is, is America has become godless, idolatrous, and immoral as a nation. Long ago, this is what happened. We divorced ourselves from the Bible. We divorced ourselves from prayer. And we divorced ourselves from living under God's authority in our life. We've done that in the public realm. We've done that in our public schools. We've bought into this lie to say that there is some sort of separation between church and state. And I'm, I'm not trying to be political at all, but what does the Bible tell us? The fools declare there's no God. And so when we try to separate ourselves from living under God's kingdom and under his rule, it's going to do nothing but destroy us culturally. And society is going to suffer because of it. And so can we say this morning that by... Removing ourselves from God and the Bible and prayer, have we become any better for that? Are our schools any better for that? Are our families any better for that? Is culture itself any better by our decision to divorce ourselves from God? I would say no, it's not. Today we hear about and we talk a lot about mental health and the struggle with mental health. I've got big questions about that term. I understand it, I recognize it, I see the effects of what we can classify as mental health, but right now what we're trying to say in the last few years is that's the offspring, that's the result of all of those COVID restrictions we did a couple years ago. And that may be some truth to that. I think it's so much bigger than a couple years of COVID restrictions. I think when we divorce ourselves from the God who created us for himself, and when we fail to relate to him as we're supposed to relate to him, that's the problem. It's not how or what we did with a mask and a quarantine, as bad as those things were. But when we divorce ourselves from our faith and belief in God and his word and seeking him in prayer, how would that not destroy us mentally? And you were quiet this morning. I... I position I hold in, in our county, I, I said in meetings when I, where I hear this conversation of mental health come up over and over and over again, and, and because of the role I, I serve in, I hear it from the standpoint of, of our staff, and I hear it from the standpoint of our students and our schools here, and I recognize that, but let me, hear, let me just say this morning, the greater need in this county and the greater need in our country is a spiritual awakening that awakes the deadness of our hearts because of our sin to the life that Jesus wants to bring. Amen. This lady walked in on this particular day and, and the way she responds, I got to believe that God was already working in her life. That's why she was there. But he did something that revolutionized her and that's not so much from the physical. That's just what we can see. But Luke tells us she glorified God. So whatever mental health struggles she had that day she walked in, that was changed in an instant as he touched her. Grace upon grace upon grace in her life. So as Christians, man, we look around and we see little that looks like the kingdom victory that we read here in the text in America. 
Instead, what we see is a people who delight in sexual immorality. We see a people who live for money and pleasure. We see a people who have no concern for God and the things of God. And yet we need to know and be sure this morning that all is not lost. The wickedness that we see should not surprise us. It is exactly what happens when Christians fail to live as salt and light. As we look over the spiritual moral landscape of our community, as we look over our nation, it does seem pretty bleak. It seems hopeless. It kind of feels like Wilma Rudolph's situation as a young girl. She was never supposed to run, much less win three gold medals in the Olympics. The way our world looks today, the kingdom of God is never supposed to rule and it's never supposed to reign. But the Bible assures us over and over again, it will do just that. You see, like a mustard seed that is growing in that, in that fertile soil, growing in that garden, it's going to grow up and it's going to grow out. It's going to reach all nations like yeast that is growing in and through people. It is going to profoundly affect all that it comes in contact with. How does this happen is the question works as Jesus calls sinners to himself and frees them from Satan's grip on their lives. Today, I want you to know that God wants to free sinners from sin. You know that. If you, you're a part of our church. You hear us every single week talk about this in worship service, in small group, in life development classes, in our children's ministry stuff. We are always talking about the gospel. We're always talking about how Jesus wants to revolutionize and transform people's lives. He wants to take the broken and put them back together. We hear this, but do we believe this? Some of you sitting in this room, maybe even watching us today, you sit here week after week after week and you hear the gospel proclaimed and you hear how Jesus loves you and you hear how Jesus wants to change your life, but you never give him the opportunity to do that. Today, this is what Jesus is doing to you. You're in the woman's position. You're bent over in your sin. You're bent over in your spiritual condition. And Jesus is looking at you and he's calling you to himself. And he says, if you will come to me, if you will come here, I will free you from this. The spiritual disability that's just ravaging you today, I will take that from you. All you've got to do is respond in faith. The woman didn't have to get up that day. She could have done what sometimes we do to one another at Walmart. I didn't see you there. Oh, I, you know, I'm not the only one that does that, right? When I'm in a hurry. Now all of you are always going to look at me if you see me at the store and be like, did he really see me? I may not have really seen you, but I, on a, one or two occasions in my life, I might have been in a hurry and dotted down a different aisle. In another city, in another state, in a different era in my life. A much more unsanctified era of my life. Will you respond this morning? Will you allow Jesus to give you spiritual victory in your life? So that's the invitation. That's the response that those who are outside of Jesus need to hear this morning and decide on. What about most of us in this room? who are believers, legitimate believers. There's been a point in our life where we knowingly, willingly turn from our sin, turn to Jesus, receive forgiveness, re receive transformation, that, that we've been growing in that faith. And sometimes it's a two steps forward and one step back type of thing, but there's been progression. So we can say legitimately, I am a follower and a lover of Jesus Christ. Right now in a season that you're in, you probably are best described as walking into guilty distance. How do you respond to that? 
Where, where is the kingdom growth in your life? What do you need to do with that? Same thing as when you came to know Jesus. Not get saved again, but turn from whatever sin that is holding you back. Confess that, repent of that, and run up and get next to Jesus again. Get right. Allow his kingdom power to flow in and through you once again. And when he's flowing in you and it's flowing through you, what happens? You're the vessel that God uses to channel that power into someone else's life. You see, as a church, we're... We're pretty simple. We, we strive to be more and more simple in what we do. And so we don't do a lot of big events. Hey, bring your friends, bring your lost people, big crusade type stuff. We don't do that. Cultures change. That those are not as effective, even though we might not have needed to do those sorts of things. That might not have needed to been our strategy in the American church of the last 50 to 100 years. So how do we live out the gospel where you live, where you work, and where you play? If you're allowing the kingdom power of God to control your life, you will be a gospel influence in those circles of influence that you have. Your family, right? Your kids, your extended family, your spouse even. Some of you are, are, are a believer, and yet your spouse is not a believer. Peter tells us that we should never seek a divorce from an unsaved uh, spouse, but instead we should live in that relationship, and we should serve in that relationship, and we should model the gospel in that relationship. Why? Because you're the greatest person, the greatest evangelist to reach that spouse with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're the greatest evangelist to lead your kids and your grandkids and your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, kids that go to school. You're the missionaries to share the gospel in a very godless place today. That's the classroom. That's where the kingdom grows. So how should you respond this morning to that? Do you need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? As a Christian, do you need to come back Walk with God, close and clean once again. That's the invitation this morning. If that's you, you come today. Let's pray. Father, the kingdom of God is real. The kingdom of God is powerful. The kingdom of God is life-transforming. The kingdom of God is spreading. Those are all realities that we acknowledge today. Those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're part of that kingdom. We've been made co-heirs with Christ. For that, we're grateful. Lord, also that comes with great responsibility as you now are working in us and working through us and using us to spread the kingdom. We don't do it with a sword. We don't do it with an army. We do it with our voices, and we do it with our lives. And so this morning, as followers of Jesus Christ in this room, we pray that you would help us to live with that great burden. May we feel the weight of that today. May we feel the weight of that responsibility. May we embrace it, Lord. May we run to it. God, may you use us in powerful ways. At the same time, Lord, we acknowledge that as we look around, the influence that we want to see is usually not what we see. And so, God, it can be discouraging. It can be deflating. It can sometimes even force us into a cocoon. 
God, I pray that we'd be able to see out and see down the line and understand what it's going to be at the final end. Victory. Victory. And we lean into you today. Father, I pray for those in this room that need a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, it may be a man that's sitting here today with a believing wife. They're nice and they're gracious to come. They've just not yet bent their knee to Jesus. Oh, God, I pray. I pray that you draw them to faith in Jesus today. May we respond. May we see the goodness of your, your kindness and the goodness of your your. your just the blessing you want to bring into us, how you want to touch us and change us and make us so much better than we are today. Father, I pray that we respond in faith. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us today. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Hey, stand your. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.